money isn't that important. Really down here, your success is measured by how many hours you can sit on the beach if you want to. Guilt-free without any other obligations. Okay, everybody, we are back. I am back, back from sabbatical, and I will fill you in on that in um, a future episode. Uh, And thanks to everybody who filled in for me. All the takeovers were awesome. I hope you enjoyed them. But it's back to our regular format. And today's guest is Mike Ragsdale. Mike Ragsdale is an entrepreneur and explorer creating several multi-million dollar ventures and visiting 50 countries so far. Mike earned a master's degree in advertising and public relations from the University of Alabama. He began his career as an internet pioneer, creating some of AOL's most successful online communities, including Hecklers Online, the world's first interactive comedy community, and Antagonist Games Network, the largest video game community in the world at the time. In 2007, Mike created 30A, a beach brand inspired by a life along Florida's Gulf Coast. 30A manages numerous media platforms, including 30A.com, which has all kinds of of different aspects to it, including craft beer, wine, electric bikes, real estate, sun care, recycled apparel, you name it. Mike is up to some incredible things in this community he's built called 30A. So I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Mike Ragsdale. Mike, it's great to have you on the Gravity Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning as we talked about, you know, our format is to hear this full life journey of yours and you're up to some really great stuff and want to kind of hear what le- what's led you to it. So tell me a little bit about kind of your early childhood upbringing, some of your kind of early memories, what your your family was like, where you're from, all that fun stuff. Yeah, well, I grew up in a, a small town named Coleman, Alabama. It's about an hour north of Birmingham, you know, pretty small, I think maybe 15,000, 12,000 population probably at the time. I was a young person, a little larger now. My father worked for the power company. He he read meters and climbed power poles in the early part of his days. And then, you know, kind of ran the warehouse for 42 years. So very, you know, very much a middle-class, lower middle-class upbringing. My mom uh, actually moved from I was originally born in Boston, but moved from Virginia Beach to join the convent in Coleman, Alabama. And that's where there was a convent where she came to school to study to be a nun and met and my dad and forever altered that course. And so mom and dad raised my brother and I there in Coleman, Alabama, small town. I mean, very much in a lot of ways, like a Mayberry or just another classic small town. And, you know, had a, had a great childhood. I don't, you know... All of us go through traumas and our own trials and, and tribulations. But for the most part, it was just a, a really great youth. When I left high school, I went to Auburn. I thought I was going to be an architect. I, I knew I liked to draw. I'm not draw, but I, I, was, I was doing a lot of designing on graph paper and stuff back then. And, and then when I got to uh, Auburn and realized I was not anywhere intelligent enough to go into architecture school. I realized that, oh, there's a lot more math involved. It's not just drawing, you know? And, and so I ended up uh, transferring to the University of Alabama and, and going into advertising and public relations. And so I graduated with a degree in, in communication from the University of Alabama, 
and then couldn't get a job, you know, frankly. Let me just hop in there for a second because I want to slow you down and go back sure. to some of this early childhood part. And, and I immediately, you know, a number of things just kind of jumped out at me. I also had that same realization in architecture school. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was uh, physics maybe that got me. But you know, when I realized that I was going to be responsible legally to make sure these buildings stayed up forever, I, I, I opted out. You know, the, the history and design were fun, but the rest was scary. So the, but, but let's go back, you know, because I've, I've been really fascinated in, in doing these interviews that generally, you know, it seems like people have unconditionally loving childhoods or very kind of traumatic childhoods. Either way, it tends to really shape their their lives. And, um, and I'm fortunate enough to interview people that have really overcome a lot and and used those experiences to serve them and and create you know great great lives for themselves. Have a lot of success. So. You had mentioned, you know, your family being one that you said, you know, you had a great childhood, and then there was also, you know, trauma along the way. So I am kind of curious in your case if you could maybe expand a little bit on maybe both of those things. I mean, if the trauma along the way was just kind of normal little, you know, hiccups, I get it, you know. But if there's anything there that maybe did really have an impact on you, I'd love to hear more about it. Well, I would say that. I had incredibly supportive, loving parents, honestly. And, you know, they did, you know, everything they possibly could to help my brother and I both become successful entrepreneurs. My brother's also a very successful entrepreneur. And, you know, it was interesting because dad, you know, graduated high school, but I mean, he flunked third grade. I mean, he was held back. I mean, he, he struggled through school and I think was probably never diagnosed with, you know, some sort of, dyslexia or something that really inhibited his ability to learn in a classroom environment. It's just not something that was diagnosed back in those days. So dad, you know, never uh, graduated college or anything like that. Mother, on the other hand, was very educated and she became a journalist. And so she, you know, wrote for the local newspaper and she was always writing. And really dad stayed pretty consistently with the power company, you know, and very blue collar and very, you know, he, he, dispatched trucks and he mowed the grass and he cleaned the warehouse and the bathrooms and the, you know, so he, so he was kind of this all encompassing manager. So had a high degree of work ethic. I mean, he would leave the house at six in the morning to go to work and we'd see him again around four or five. And that was just dad, you know, and he was always on call. And anytime we sat down to Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, it was guaranteed, you know, that he was going to get a phone call and he was going to have to go out and, you know, service people who were without power or whatever. It was just a, a guaranteed event every year. And, but mother's career kind of followed my brother and I. So when we were in school, she was the lunchroom lady. When we were in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts, she was the den mom, you know, so she was her her career kind of ended up following our interests and our um, path. So she was always, always there. And, you know, as you get older, that becomes less cool. <laughs> you know, it's super cool when you're in fourth and fifth grade, you know, but when you're in high school, not so much, you know, but that's it. it she was consistent throughout it in her support. You know, the traumas I had were self-induced originally. You know, I was kind of the, the goody two-shoes kid. I was the overachiever because mom was always pushing me. You know, I was an Eagle Scout. I was, you know, all of these different things. And mom was really the one kind of pushing me, you know, to kind of achieve these things. 
But in seventh grade, I started getting in trouble, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. like drugs or anything like that, you know, but I started to be mischievous. I mean, and not in a hurtful way, but, you know, sneaking out of the house, you know, toilet papering teachers' yards and getting caught and, you know, these coming of age type things that I, I would, I would say were more Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer trouble, you know, not, you know, not the type of trouble that unfortunately a lot of kids get into, but mischievous trouble, but still caused embarrassment for my parents, embarrassment for me. And so that was an inflection point, almost like a waking, because it changed everybody else's perception of me too, right? So suddenly when I got in trouble for doing something mischievous, it really conflicted with this perception that people had of me through that point. So that's neither good nor bad, but it Mm -hmm. definitely set me off on a a path of awakening, you know, and that who am I, you know, am I, am am I what I was the first, you know, 10, 12 years of my life or or am I something different as a teenager? So I'm sorry, just what age was that, that you were starting to have that kind of an awakening? I'm just curious about that. It's that sixth, seventh, eighth grade, like, you know, it's middle middle school. It's, it's Mm -hmm. all of a sudden having an interest in girls, all of a sudden having Mm -hmm. your feelings hurt, being very self-conscious about your appearance, right? you know, like you you don't really have that, that much in third Mm -hmm. and fourth grade. But by the time you get to sixth grade and the girls are starting to, you know, catch your attention and, and you're wondering why they don't like you. And you, you realize later on in hindsight, you realize you were trying so hard that you were mm-hmm. just repelling everything around you, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that really continued throughout high school and college. I mean, I, I never understood. I was one of those kind of, I would say the biggest defining characteristic about me in a lot of ways in high school and college was that I felt rejected by members of the opposite sex, you know, I mean, and, and carried a deep resentment about that, you know, because I couldn't understand it. Like I didn't understand what's wrong with me kind of thing. And, and look, that's so typical. And it's a very typical mm-hmm experience. But for me, it really was defining because I think in a lot of ways, and I've I've heard other people say this, so this is nothing particularly original, but a lot of ways, you know, I've overcompensated later in my life Mm -hmm. trying to be the guy that people like and trying to be that, you know, trying to be one of the cool kids and, you know, and, and never quite being there, but always aspiring to be even at, the, mm-hmm. at this age, you know, and I mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. have high school friends that I, I play call of duty with three or four nights a week, you know, yeah. that it's our version of golf. You know, we get online mm-hmm. and, and play our games. So I developed, I'm very fortunate that I literally have friends I've known since kindergarten. I have friends that I've been friends with for 40 plus years who I still play games with almost mm-hmm. every night. I travel mm-hmm. with to the Philippines, to Thailand, to different places. You know, So mm-hmm. I'm very blessed that I have lifelong friends. And I, I didn't know that wasn't a thing until you know I married my wife, et cetera, and realized, oh, not everybody is so fortunate to have that. Yeah. You know? And so I yeah. really have a strong foundation with my friends. And I would say that was the biggest thing that came out of high school mm-hmm. was this very tight bond, this very mm. tight friendship I have that ended up turning into business partnerships and much more down the road. Yeah, uh, good. So I want to I want to hear about that, but just to kind of you know flush this out a little bit more. You know, I think what you're sharing is great. It's really very normal experience that maybe still isn't as talked about as it should be. You know, what it's like to be a teenage boy and the role of you know relationships and 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 being liked and and accepted and validated and and how that can really influence your life. I mean, depending on how much you let it or 
how much resentment gets built up or you know how much how much work you do or don't do to kind of become aware of what's happening right and then decide if you if you want to change something about it so I, i'm curious you know you you kind of describe this you know awakening or you know kind of realization of what was going on and and you know oftentimes you know those things are very clear in hindsight but you know maybe you could explain a little bit along the way you know how present to you, were you to what was going on and and kind of the inner conflict that was there and and what you wanted to do about it or did it not really start to become clear what had been happening all those years until you you know got to a certain point in life you know maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on that and then i also want to hear the gaming thing obviously becomes a big part of this and and maybe we can you know talk about how you got to that but you know were you interested in gaming as a kid and you know kind of what what role does that thread have as you start to move through your childhood it's really interesting because you know i was born at the precise right time to experience video games literally from the ground up so you know i remember getting the pong system, you know, and it was at Sears and Roebuck, you know, we would go out of town to the mall or, you know, like in some other city, because we certainly didn't have one. But I remember the, the first Pong game, you know, and it was literally just, you know, a dot moving back and forth on a screen. And that was probably when I was six, seven, eight years old, right? And then came along the Atari 2600, you know, and so you were able to play Space Invaders and Pac-Man and these games. And then I got into Commodore Big 20 and Commodore 64 and then Nintendo, you know, Nintendo and Sega Genesis. So I've been along with every platform along the way. And it really was something that it's been amazing to watch that entire mm -hmm. thing unfold and to blossom as, in, into what it is and where it's virtually indistinguishable from reality in some cases now. Mm -hmm. So I believe that that's, you know, I, I believe that there's a purpose in that. I don't know what it is, but I do believe that playing games, you know, some guys are into golf, you know, or they're into a sport, you know, for, for me and my friends, it's always been gaming and that's been what's brought us together. So it's been a huge defining thread that's been common throughout the, the fabric of my whole life. And I feel like it's something that is important for people to play. And in fact, I, without skipping topics, I had the pleasure of being on Necker Island with Richard Branson for a, about a week, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that he does, he, he's so big on play. And I mm. always felt guilty playing video games as an adult, like I should be working and I should be doing this. But after leaving him, I really realized that play is such an important part of his life. Now he's playing billiards or chess or, you know, mm. wakeboarding, whatever he's doing. But, you know, for me, it, it is, it is a, it is a huge part of my life every day now. And really, in hindsight, always has been. So I think mm -hmm. that, that component of play is, is super important to my happiness and productivity. And, it, and it's, it's been with me since childhood. Yeah, I, I definitely want to come back and talk about that. Kind of, I've had this debate with uh, many of my friends as it pertains to parenting. So I have a, a belief system around play and games in particular. But let's, let's kind of stick with that first thread. So this, you have this kind of awakening. Tell me just a little bit more about kind of like how that went for you. Did it, did, was that something you realized in hindsight now, or was that something that you were consciously experiencing along the way? 
it it was one of those things when you start to get to the age where you're spending the night at friends' houses and then, you know, somebody's just sneaking out, you know, of the house in the middle of the night. And there's a sense of adrenaline I got with that, that, you know, I felt like an adult, you know, I felt like I was, I was, it it was a sense of freedom running around in the middle of the night through neighborhoods at 2am and just slinking around and, and walking to the school or the high school or sneaking around. You just, it just, it felt adventurous. It got your blood, you know, pumping and circulating. And then when you get away with it, you get bolder and bolder and bolder, you know? So, so I would say that it, there was never any malicious intent, was never any, any, you know, real, real trouble being created, but certainly scandalous, you know, to a seven, uh, seventh grader and, and to a seventh grader's parents who are, who are used to having, you know, the altar boy, literally the altar boy and the boy scout, you know, kind of being the model that they're holding out is what you should be. And instead mm-hmm. sneaking out in the middle of the night, getting in trouble and, and, you know, getting brought home by the police or whatever, you know, uh, that, that type of stuff. So I would say the awakening, uh, awakening is probably more coming of age, you know, yeah. and realizing that, you know, there are choices and those choices have consequences, but even though those choices sometimes had bad consequences, I still loved it. I still loved the feeling I got of being taking risks. And I think that later played out in, in my professional life as well. Yeah. So that that's kind of why I was so curious about that, because you know, there is this kind of feeling and and, and you know, it's like an incongruence, you know, that the, as you said, that you know, you have this this energy, this this kind of thrill, this excitement, this something that feels like, you know, I want to do this. It's fun. It's exciting, you know, and then, and I want to do more of it. I want to level that up. You know, I want to, I want to, but it's definitely on the other hand, like, well, in, in this case, you know, your, your parents, society, you know, the, 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 the community you're in, they say I should be something else. And so there's this conflict and, and I don't want to, you know, project, but I, but I feel that a lot in, in our society today. And, and, and I feel that a lot in my own life and have over the years where it's like, hmm, do, do I want to kind of chase this thing that people say is, is bad, right? Or risky or, you know, not, not the path you're supposed to go on. I mean, you know, kind of coming back to the gaming thing, I was telling my son this last night when I was a kid. And and I kind of went through most of those various gaming, you know, phases too. Well, but when I was a kid, if you sat in your basement, which is usually where the console was, right, and and played video games, then you were a idiot. You were <laughs> wasting your life. You should be yeah. studying. You should be going to college. You should be doing all these things. That was like that was bad over there. And not totally, you know, completely, but by and large, there was this fear that that was going to go down a bad path. Turns out, turns out, fast forward, the gamers are the athletes of our generation now, right? They're the celebrities, the superstars, the successful ones. So, you know, I just, I'm kind of struck by this, like, this desire to maybe go over one way when, there's this pool that you're supposed to be back somewhere else. Yeah, and I've I've entered a stage of my life where it really is about the pursuit of happiness for me, and and it's it's a lifelong struggle. I'm a chronic worrier. 
I, I'm a very manic personality. I can be just, I can be the life of the party or I can be the most depressed, you know, individual you've ever met. And it's very up and down. So I've tried to find a balance. And I really also have come to the realization that our, our purpose here is to be happy. And you're, if you're not personally happy, you're not going to be, there's a, there's something that's a lot more contagious with COVID that's happiness, you know, mm-hmm. or, or it's, it's attitude. So if you're, you feel when a negative person walks into the room. I mean, it brings an entire room down. You also feel when a ball of energy walks into a room and lights up the room. So I feel like if you're not a happy person, you're not going to be inspiring happiness in others. And you're also not going to be in a position to do good. You're not going to be in a position. You're not going to be in the mood to start charities and uh, to contribute to you know, charitable projects. That that's something you've got to start with yourself and then work in concentric circles outward. But if you don't have that central circle taken care of, the rest of the circles aren't going to happen. You know, they're they're just not going to happen reliably. So I, I feel like that pursuit of happiness is something I've struggled with my entire life. But as the the older I get, the more I realize how essentially what you're talking about is, you know, how do you how do you find a place where you're able to be happy and support your loved ones and also live the life you want to live without letting society tell you you have to be a certain thing or you have to do it a certain way. I'm kind of convinced we all have to shed that skin as quickly as we possibly can. And unfortunately, it's often not until much later in life that we realize how important that is. And by then, as, as someone famously said, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, I think that that's, kind of where I am. I'm going, dang, man, I wish I could go back and like we all do. I wish I could go back in time and have this wisdom. But that said, we don't have that luxury. All we can do now is focus on the present moment. Yeah. I, I, I love Naval Ravikant. I don't know if uh, you follow him at all. But, I, I know yeah. who he is. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he talks about you kind of these like stages where, you know, you have, and I, I'm, I might butcher this, but from memory, you know, you've got your, your health You've got your financial freedom, and and then there's time, and and the the key is to try to be able to put those three together. You know, usually yeah. when you're young, you've got no time and no money, you know, but you're healthy, and then you get to a certain age where you're you're still healthy, and you've got some money, but you have no time because you're working really hard. And then you know, if you're not careful, you get to a point where you know you've got time and money, but your health is gone. And so the key is to try to, you know, bring those three together, which which I like a lot. Okay. So let's let's fast forward to back to college. So you're you're kind of having this realization architecture isn't for you and and you go into uh, marketing. Tell me a little bit about kind of how things unfold for you from there. So I went into I I, I hopped around majors uh, for a while, you know, like like many people do. And finally settled on communication. I've, I found that I like being creative and I felt like being in advertising was a, a way to be creative while still making a living. Again, not realizing that you know, you're not confined to the options that they have on the syllabus. You, know, there are, you can make up whatever life you want, but at the time, you don't really know that. And so I, I, I enjoyed it and I, I did well in the program, but... I'm kind of an idea guy. I'm not a graphic designer. So my portfolio, quote unquote, is mostly copy, you know, writing and, and ideas and headlines and, you know, graphic design 
was not my my calling by any stretch. And this is pre, you know, internet and pre freelancers and you know all that sort of stuff as far as online freelancers. So I couldn't get a job. You know, I sent resumes everywhere. I I you know got interviews, but then I never was able to score a gig. And Finally, I think my professors finally kind of felt sorry for me. I went to Yellowstone and worked for a, a season at Old Faithful as a, as a cashier. And then I think my professors felt bad for me. So they said, well, why don't you come back and be a graduate teaching assistant? We'll give you financial assistance if you you know help us teach classes, etc. So I went back and got a master's degree in advertising and PR just because I didn't have any other options, not because I really aspired to be academically forward thinking. I was just killing time. And under those circumstances for that two years, I began to do consulting work, freelance work for one of the professors. And Dr. Gonzenbach was much more of an entrepreneur than he was a professor. You know, he had all these side hustles and corporate accounts, and he was working with Southern Living and Coastal Living and American Airlines and different clients. So he hired me to just do things like tabulate surveys or clean up, you know, copy and and run errands. So for the next two years, I began kind of learning from him. He was my Mr. Miyagi, you know, and he's teaching me kind of like never turn down gigs and until you get to a certain point. He's just teaching me the, not only the work ethic, but the, you know, how to also take my lumps. You know, if I made him, I remember one time making a mistake on a brochure and it was going to cost several hundred dollars to rerun the, the press plate or whatever it was. And, you know, he made me pay for it because it was my mistake, you know, and that was a, a big shock. I didn't have $200, you know, but he, he kind of taught me that this is real. You know, this is business. This is not a student project anymore. You're, you're an entrepreneur. So I graduated with a master's degree, fully expecting to land that dream ad agency job. I mean, I won't say mad men because that didn't exist back then, you know, but, but I'm saying that, you know, I had this vision of, being in a corporate office with a view of a cityscape. And, you know, that was what I thought was going to happen. And again, absolutely could not get a job. You know, I mean, I, I couldn't find anything. And some of my friends had gone to get these ad agency jobs. And I was pretty jealous, frankly. Mm -hmm. And there was another moment where I was just doing, I was doing like side hustle work, you know, to pay my rent and to, to you know, provide my beer money. And as a essentially a college kid, and I remember this is before there were cell phones per se. And I had this cordless phone though in my apartment complex, and, you know, one of the big old GI Joe phones with the antenna and it connected to the base that was up in my apartment. So I could sit out at the pool at my apartment complex in this college town. And if the, you know, the, the sun was right, and the shade was right, you know, I could get a connection out there. So I remember one time it was a Tuesday morning and there were kids playing the pool. So it must've been summer or a week. Uh, it was definitely a weekday. And I remember talking to my friend who had scored one of these ad agency jobs. I mean, like the dream job, one of the biggest mm -hmm. agencies in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was super jealous, you know, and I remember speaking to him on the phone and I was kind of complaining. I was feeling like I was not, again, not sufficient. I was like, why not me? Why, what's, not, mm -hmm. what's not good about my portfolio? What's not good about my credentials? What am I missing here? And about that time, he heard the kids splashing around in the pool and he said, Mike, where are you? And I said, uh, I'm out. Of, I'm sitting out here at the pool, you know. Mm. And he said, Mike, how much are how much do you make from your consulting right now? And I said, you know, maybe fifteen hundred a month, maybe two thousand in a good month. And so he's like, mm. so you're making eighteen thousand a year, you know, something like that. And and I mm. said, yeah, you know, I guess so. I mean, just you know, I was designing Girl Scout newsletters. I was doing whatever mm. it took. 
Mm-hmm. And he said, Mike, I'm sitting in a cubicle. I'm wearing a tie. I have to drive back and forth an hour to the office every day. I'm making 22000 a year. So mm-hmm. you do the math. And it really mm-hmm. was a wake-up call that, wait a minute, maybe I don't have to get that job. Maybe it's okay mm-hmm. if I don't mm-hmm. get that job. Maybe it's, and it, maybe I should just do what I'm doing. And so right. that's what I did. I took out a small business loan and bought a computer and then just set up shop. I got some business cards printed called Vision Advertising. Mm-hmm. And I just started leaning into the freelance work rather than wondering why I don't have a corporate job. And that forever changed the path of my life because mm-hmm. from that point forward, I became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious because it's always funny like how we end up falling into what we do, right? And I have kids that are old enough to start thinking about what they want to be doing and college age kids. And and I've been kind of realizing that, you know, it's it's really good just to start somewhere, right? Because it, it, life will reveal itself to you along the way. And if you're willing to listen to your heart and to kind of pay attention to the things that are showing up, you can figure it out, so to speak, right? And, and, and I think that's, you know, something that, you know, maybe you do your entire life, I'm still figuring it out, right? You kind of go from one thing to the next. But, but I'm curious, and this is why, you know, I love the kind of format of our podcast is because, you know, oftentimes you can really see how one thing led to the next. So you, you end up, you know, in this advertising world and you said Mad Men, which, right, wasn't a thing, but the idea of like something kind of cool, right? Like high energy, you know, maybe looking good, fun, like money, right? Like this is where it's going to be. I'm going to be a success. And, and, and maybe, you know, girls will like me or whatever else, you know, you're still thinking about like from, you know, your childhood or just, you know, even at that stage in your life that seems, you know, important, maybe it is important. You know, but it's 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 actually fueling you more than you think. You know, and at the same time, you go down a path of of creativity too. So it's not just you know, kind of all the the fun, looking good, kind of cool childhood things you took on, but there's some creativity in there too that feels important to you also, which I, I think is another kind of biggie for us that you know. And I'm not sure if it's everybody, but I think most people probably are meant to be creative. And we suppress that because we think we're supposed to get desk jobs and do all these other things that society tells us we're supposed to do. So there's that that's a little debatable. Some people say I don't have a creative bone in my body. I'm not convinced, but I'm just kind of curious to hear you as I reflect that back to you, you know, kind of share just how important all the all those steps along the way were to lead you into what eventually becomes an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, I I'm I I still say this, although everyone around me would immediately call BS, but you know, I basically I'm I'm lazy, you know, like and and probably always have been, but everybody around me thinks I'm the one of the hardest working people that they know. And it's because something did ignite in me when I began creating something, you know, and and in my case, it was creating a business. I didn't know really that that's what I was doing, but I got high on that. You know, I had a sense of achievement, you know, and I, when I got a paycheck and I could provide 
and, and pay for my own apartment and I could live by myself because I was making enough money to have a, a, a little two-bedroom apartment and have an office and have my own business cards and have my own computer. I felt like I was, you know, I thought I was Bill Gates. And, you know, it, it, it really did start to drive me. So even though I'm lazy in a physical labor sense, you know, you, you put me out doing real hard work, I shut down pretty fast. But mental work, I got really energized over. And so I began leaning into that. And as a result, kind of, as you say, one thing leads to another. This computer that I bought, I took out a business loan, bought a computer, set up shop. Well, this computer I bought came with this little thing that most people uh, much younger than me don't remember, but called an AOL disk. And an AOL disk, AOL was a, an unknown company they were third place behind two other companies called CompuServe and Prodigy. And there was no Yahoo or Google or Amazon or any of that, eBay, none of that. And I had the computer came with this disk and I popped this disk in and it gave you 10 free hours. Back then, for anyone who's younger in your audience, you know, we paid $3.95 per hour to be on the internet. And the internet wasn't what we think of today, of course. And the web did not exist. But so I put this disc in, was immediately just because of my gaming background, I was engaged. I mean, I was very much engaged in this thing. It's like, wow, you can chat with people and you can click here and get stocks. And I didn't even know what stocks were, but I could look Mm -hmm. at stocks and I could do all of these things. And it blew my mind. And after a few months of using it, I, I, I kind of blindly, again, as an entrepreneur with time on his hands, I I sent a business proposal to America Online. And by sent, I mean, I didn't mean via email. That really wasn't a thing. And I went to Kinko's and I, I printed out a little five page. I heard they were looking for people to, who were going to change the business model, who were going to be the, the infopreneurs of this new medium that was launching. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, but I had an idea and I sent it to them on pieces of paper that were stapled at Kinko's and I fired and forgot them. And you know, a few months later, I get a call out of the blue by a guy named Miguel, and he's in Arlington or Tyson's Corner, Virginia, and said, you know, we really love your idea. I'd love for you to come up and, and speak with us about it. And again, out of total ignorance, I, I was like, well, do you guys, do you guys pay for the flights? Or, you know, like they kind of laugh, no, we don't pay for the flights. You know, again, I'm an, I'm an idiot. I don't know how this stuff works. So I literally called two of my high school buddies. One, they were, one was in law school at Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and he was on the way. And so we literally did a road trip. We said, yeah, we'll be there. We literally drove 24 hours uh, to get to DC. And we, we spent the night all together in a comfort in room that we split and we'll, you know, got there at four in the morning, went to our 8 a.m. morning meeting. We slept for two hours on, all on a, all in the same bed and <laughs> comfort in. And went to the AOL meeting. And and that's a whole long story. The first meeting was a disaster, but eventually we got them to invest in our idea. And that became a pretty huge... Well, it was arguably the largest inflection point from an entrepreneurial status. But that that really starts to to bring all of the things together. Gaming, humor, friendship, business, etc. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I saw that in your bio and I'd love to hear more about kind of that piece, you know, how it kind of all comes together. Cause to me, this, this is really the key thing that, you know, again, kind of, you know, when I talk to my kids or when I talk to 
anybody, you know, that's looking for business advice, mentorship, you know, or even, you know, for myself, as I continue to evolve what I'm doing, it's part of the reason I love this podcast is because you want to do things with people you really enjoy. You know, you're in good conversation, you share values, you've got the same kind of desires in life. And 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 then you know you want to do things that you actually like to do that are fun. You know the the idea of play. And so you know as I you know read your bio, I see a lot of that. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about kind of how this AOL experience starts to unfold for you in in that kind of way. Yeah. So our the idea was the original idea was to create the world's first humor site. And again, there were no websites back then. Okay, so not, none of this existed. So the idea was we called it Hecklers Online. And the idea was that the heckler is the person in the audience, right? For the first time in human history, the person on the stage would not be the star. It would be the person in the audience. And that was the imp- entire premise for Hecklers Online was that the, the community, the audience would write the jokes, not uh, a handful of writers for David Letterman who write jokes behind the scene. But instead of writing a top 10 list that might be funny or not, because you only have two or three writers, instead, you've got a universe of writers. So as an example, our interactive top 10 list, we would receive thousands of submissions every day. We did it 365 days a year, holidays, etc. And we would post a different topic every day. So it might be top 10 rejected names for Madonna's baby or you know, top 10 you know, reasons you should never fly on Delta or whatever the heck we came up with. And we would receive thousands and thousands of suggestions every day. And we would curate those suggestions and put them into a list and give the person who submitted it credit, you know? And so these were the founding principles of interactivity. We had the most successful launch in AOL's history up to that point. So we, you know, instantly became almost the Saturday Night Live of AOL. And in fact, most AOL people thought we had hacked our way into the system because we were so irreverent and unlike. We were kind of like Monty Python. We were not, we were not um, vulgar, but we were smarmy and, and you know and, and sarcastic and and you know just kind of troublemakers. And mm-hmm. so we were kind of the SNL of AOL in the early days. Much some people loved us, some people hated us. But what we did do is we shook it up because at mm-hmm. that time. No one updated content more than once a month online. So every time Time came out with a new magazine, they cut and pasted the articles. There were no videos or anything like that. And it would just be new text would be available. And then it would be 30 days before you would see new content from them. Well, we introduced the idea of content by the minute, by the hour. You know, So mm-hmm. we had dozens of contests going, dozens of activities happening our screens were colorful. It was very Mardi Gras colors and very just, you know, like this weird place that people are like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. And it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. So it exploded overnight. And we were constantly in trouble, you know, uh, again, kind of going back to the troublemakers. We were constantly AOL's terms of service. It was TOS, TOS. They were kind of mm-hmm. like the, you know, the police force of AOL. So they were constantly making us take down articles or take down things or censoring us. But we were always pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable and what wasn't. And most of the other communities didn't have to worry about that. We were the ones who were kind of pushing those boundaries because we were the troublemakers. Mm -hmm. So we had a huge successful launch. And then that was humor. And then what? one day, I wish I could say it was a business plan and we had all this great strategic thinking and everything. But 
that wasn't the case. We were at AOL one day and they said, what's next, man? What are you guys going to do next? You know, you guys mm-hmm. just had this amazing launch. We, we want to know what else you got in mind. And we mentioned, we were talking about video games or something. And somebody said, you know, if you reviewed video games, they'd send you free video games every day. And we're like, what? Really? And so we launched a video game site and it became the largest video game site in the world at the time. And sure enough, we started receiving video games in the mail and like people mm-hmm. like, hey, can you review, you know, this Quake game or Mario 64 or whatever it is. So all day, next thing you know, we're doing humor and irreverent comedy and we're doing mm-hmm. video games. And then we did later on, we did sci-fi and fantasy. So all of these geeky things that we loved in high school and college, whether it was Star Wars and Star Trek or, or Mario 64 or Monty Python or irreverent humor. Now that was our daily job. So yeah. every day we, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I love it, right? Cause this is now your daily job. And you know, this is, this is what, you know, I call opus, you know, where you get to kind of just like do things that you would um, typically just be doing with your buddies, you know, or in your spare time, but you're getting paid to do it. And so it does not feel like work, you know, and this is great because, you know, I I like to kind of reflect back on what you were saying earlier, you know, this kind of, you know, irreverent comedy, you know, well, you had a bit of that as a kid in you. That was giving you joy and and pleasure and and energy and and was fun and exciting and and to some degree how you like to spend your time. You, you weren't really technically allowed to do it, but you found a way now that that allows you to do it and get paid to do it. You know that's that's kind of like the 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 goal. You know when when you when you find that, you could do that forever. You know that you don't need to retire because that's somebody's paying you to do what you love to do. Absolutely, and and you know we had a very blissful six or seven years doing that. But what happened is we began to lose. Again, I'm in in great. Mm-hmm. I'm surrounded by my best friends in this process as well, which makes it even better, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like these are guys I grew up with and that I just still play games with on last night until two in the morning this morning. I've had about three hours of sleep. And, you know, these guys are are just lifelong friends and business partners. So it was like just being, hanging out with your buddies. And and we literally had a couch in the office and we just put a projector and started playing Mario Kart on the wall. And that just became a thing. But we grew it to about 70 employees at its peak. You know, I would say most of the years we were in the, you know, 20, 25 employee range, but we grew it where it was just this huge creative team of artists and writers and video game reviewers. But what happened was it's a lot easier as you grow as a business. It's a lot easier economically to hire someone to review video games than it is to hire a senior VP of business development, for example. Mm -hmm. So what happened um, is that we ended up graduating into the corporate roles within our own company. And next thing you know, we're not the ones playing the games. We're the ones talking to lawyers, talking to venture capitalists. We're the ones dealing with, you know, business strategy sessions and all this crap. And, you know, everybody else that we hired is out writing comedy and 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 making funny videos, jib jab type stuff and reviewing video games. So, you know, the last couple years, I would say, you know, were extraordinary because we did, we were able to to cash out at a great time. But 
it also wasn't a fun part of the business. We also did it to, to bring in another element. And this goes back to the, the opposite gender. We also were approached by Playboy at some point. They wanted us to create content for their network. They were trying to grow a network that would target Gen X males. And they wanted video game reviews. And they wanted humor. And they wanted sci-fi and fantasy. They wanted to have much more offerings than what their magazine typically offered. So we started working for them. So now you really enter... Now you've got video games. You've got Playboy Mansion parties. You've got humor. You've got comedy. You've got sci-fi and fantasy. It was like... This, this, this is this the life I'm living, you know? And so we're yeah. we're going out to LA for you know Playboy functions, or we're going to New York for video game expos, or Japan for you know venture capital summit meetings. And so we're like, you know, it really was this golden era, and mm-hmm. and except incredibly exhilarating for a 25 year old, you know, to to kind of be in this position and to be, you know, by the I was 29 by the time I kind of stepped down as CEO. But that said, it really was an extraordinary moment in, in our lives. Yeah. So, so tell me, you know, you, you guys eventually end up cashing out. You know, you have this realization that, and, and I'm not sure if you, you did at the time or later in, in hindsight, but, you know, now you're kind of the corporate guy and having to do all the corporate things, even though it's a golden era, you know, you're, you're, you've lost some of the, the fun of, of the, of the, 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 the job to begin with. Tell me, you know, kind of how does that come to an end? And 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 I want to make sure we talk about 30A and and everything you're doing now. And I'm also really curious, I can't help but to think, you know, when you talk about kind of the AOL days and the there wasn't websites and content creation and all of these people wanting to kind of get into to to the content world, what's happening now? I mean, I I definitely want to make sure we talk about kind of you know, Web3 and, and, and kind of metaverse and, and everything that's starting to happen. It feels like that all over again for me. So tell me a little bit about kind of how you transition into 30A. So what I didn't realize I was doing was we were developing the principles of community building, online niche community building. And that did not exist. And it's very easy. I mean, I'm not trying to take credit, but I also don't think we'll ever get proper credit, you know, because we develop a lot of the principles that are now just commonplace, right? You know, in terms of interactivity, in terms of aggregating content, in terms of curating the best content and elevating it, letting your audience have the microphone. So a lot of these things that we now assume, just it's kind of common sense, we were building those blocks and showing other companies how to do it. We were being emulated and copied you know, in a positive way by people right and left. So we ended up, Sean and Scott and I, my partners and friends, developed the principles that, you know, we still use and see today. I mean, now it would have inevitably happened, right? You know, we weren't, you know, the only guys who could have come up with it, but it's kind of like Milton Berle wearing a dress on TV. You know, somebody was going to wear a dress, but it took Milton Berle to go, oh, people in the Midwest can see me now, not just hear me on radio. So mm-hmm. if I put a dress on, that's fun because they've never seen that before, right? Mm-hmm. So in our case, we were developing the foundation that that now everybody uses. Uh, it was inevitable that those foundations were going to be built, but we just happened to be the guys who did it. So we sold the company in a majority interest in, in ni- December of 1999, about four months before what later became known as the dot-com crash. We were not one of these companies that had, we had no debt. 
you know, we didn't have, we were not, we didn't have a burn rate that exceeded our means and out of ignorance. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have money for a computer. We didn't buy a computer, you know I mean? It was just what was in the checkbook while other companies were out there raising tens of millions of dollars burning through it. And the idea that they would go IPO and they would go supernova uh, and everybody would make their money. Well, when the music stopped in April of 2000, all of those funds dried up. You know, nobody was putting money into those companies anymore. And so in our case, we were advertising support in, a, in, a, in an era when nobody was advertising support, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people didn't advertise online except dot-com companies who had all mm-hmm. this money because nobody understood what online advertising was or whether it should even be allowed. Mm-hmm. And what happened with us is that over time, as those dot-com companies died, they stopped advertising. So our model eventually got hit because we were advertising supported. And as the advertisers died, that drove CPM rates through the floor. So, you know, one year we're making $60 CPM on ads. Next year we were lucky to get $2, you know, mm-hmm. CPM if we could even get. It. So mm-hmm. that's when we kind of shuttered it. You know, we didn't bankrupt. We didn't, you know, we just didn't have any, we just kind of unfortunately had to lay off a bunch of people, uh, including dear friends that we had recruited from other places. So we learned the ugly side of the business, not the ugly side, but the, 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 the not so fun side. And that was right. where we're having to lay people off. We're having to think about what we want to do next. And I got involved in a lot of businesses that I literally had no passion about. No, I went back into the corporate world, into healthcare IT for a while. I bought a restaurant and miserably failed at that. I did, I did a bunch of stupid, dumb things over the next decade that were demoralized, you know, because, you know, you come off of this high thinking I'm the smartest cat in the room and realize, nope, I'm an idiot, you know, and realizing that entrepreneurship, it doesn't matter sometimes how good your idea is, how good your business plan is, or how good your team is. Sometimes the stars just don't line up. And you have to look at it a little bit more like baseball. You know, it's like if you're if you're batting 300, you're a rock star. But that still means you're striking out 70% of the time. And I think that having the success I had with that first company was aching to kind of get into the major leagues and hitting a home run at your first bat and going, well, hell, that's easy. Let's just keep mm-hmm. doing that, you know, and then mm-hmm. and then you get up there and strike out the next eight times and you start to question yourself, you know, and you start to question, man, maybe I'm maybe that was just luck. In hindsight, it wasn't luck. I mean, it was a lot of hard work and we navigated a lot of minefields. But where I made the mistake in that next chapter of my life is pursuing things strictly for money, strictly because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to go work as a as a chief marketing officer of this healthcare IT company, or I'm supposed to go start another business. I mean, nobody really told me I didn't have to do that stuff or I didn't have to do it that way. So mm-hmm. at some point after I'd had enough failures that I couldn't take it anymore, my wife and I, we have four children and we decided to pick up and move to the beach. To uh, we, we knew we wanted to move somewhere. Well, we didn't decide we wanted to move to the beach. We just knew we wanted to move somewhere. We were looking at international options. We were looking at you know, domestic options. And we just, I won't say accidentally, but, but life, life the, the, the eddies of the river brought us to this beach where we call home now. And I, again, to make the transition complete, or at least to, to lead into the next chapter, what I then began doing just because it comes second nature to me is I began building a community again around a niche interest. My niche interests in the early days were humor and video games and sci-fi. 
And at this stage in my life, my interest was, you know, the beach and, and living a happy lifestyle. So I began developing a community around the idea of, of living a happy life at the beach. And that all of those skills that I developed uh, with hecklers and my, my video game sites, I applied to the beach lifestyle. And so that's kind of, it happened accidentally. It wasn't intentional, but mm-hmm. it's just, it's just second nature to me. And so that really is what I've developed now is a community of people who are passionate about the beach lifestyle. And, and I know that takes a number of different forms. I mean, there's, you know, 30A from, from craft beer and wine to electric bikes and real estate and sun care and apparel, you know, so tell me, tell me about kind of that. Cause I'm actually, and, and maybe we'll connect when we're, we're done recording. I, I also have kind of come to realize that what I love to do is build community. And I think it's, it's kind of funny because community is inside of a lot of things. And, and, you know, if you're not paying attention, you might think that you're, in my case, building real estate or just hosting a podcast. But um, actually what you're doing is you're, you're building a community. And, and if, you, if, you, if you put a little energy into it, you know, there's something really tangible there that is, you know, called community. So without going down that rabbit hole, you know, I, I do want to hear a little bit about how are you building community with 30A? You know, there's a lot there. So to talk about the 30A community. Yeah. So for those who don't know, um, there, I, I moved to a town called Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, which is in the panhandle of Florida between Destin and Panama City Beach. And it's a rural, I, I won't say rural, it's small towns, little small boutique beach towns. There is no downtown per se, but there are all these cool little beach resorts and funky beach communities along this particular stretch of road that is called Scenic Highway 30A. Now, 30A is kind of like saying Route 66 or A1A or US1. So when I moved here, I didn't know, we didn't know anybody and I didn't know how I was going to provide for my family. I had a nest egg, but we were now spending into that. And so I didn't know what we were going to do. I just knew that I was ready to just kind of do a reset. So we picked up and we moved to the beach, kind of sight unseen in in some ways. And just like within 90 days of having made the decision, we found ourselves in this new place. And just I gave up my cell phone. I I had no emails coming in because I had no business anymore. We had shut down a couple of failed businesses. So I thought, you know, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. I want to be creative. I want to get back to writing, whether it's novel or screenplay or short stories. I just felt like that's what I wanted to do. So I applied to a couple of the small little local newspapers and, and, you know, you made nothing in the grand scheme, you know, just peanuts. But I thought I need to start practicing my writing skills in what better way than to get some newspaper assignments. And then I also figured, well, I better start blogging. And I didn't really know what a blog was per se, but I'm like, I better, that, that would give me an opportunity to kind of exercise these muscles that I had left since I'd worked writing humor and video game reviews, right? So I wanted to get back in the swing of that. And so I felt like I needed a, a URL for this blog. Now, nobody called this area 30A back then, right? So I bought 30A.com. It just happened to be a road near us and I just bought it. And I started blogging about our family's transition to this new beach lifestyle. And 
that blog just kind of grow. Meanwhile, I started doing consulting, public relations consulting for a couple of companies, and that was paying my bills. But I, I, for fun, as a hobby, was just sharing experiences on this webpage. And then it started to even become sharing recommendations because one of the things that happens when you move to the beach is all of a sudden you have all these people who come visit you. And I, and I was, in, was in love and still am in love with my town, my home community now. And I wanted to remember, oh, yeah, we got to take people to this place. Or, oh, we got to take them for the sunset view here. The martinis here are amazing. So I started developing lists of recommendations and people started following that. You know, almost like, ooh, I didn't know about that place. That's cool. And finally, after doing that for three or four years, just as for fun, a real estate guy came up to me on the beach one day and he said, you know, hey, Mike, I really like your website. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. And he said, how much is it to advertise on it? I hadn't even thought about it as a business. So I just said, I don't know, 50 bucks a month or whatever. And he said, okay. And he, and he, you know, wrote me a check and I put his ad up there and few months, you know, a few weeks later, another guy like, Hey, how much is it advertised on your site? And I'm like, I don't know, a hundred dollars. And then I kept, you know, just going up. And over time, it ended up becoming this great side hustle, which was now not only something I loved to do, but was generating, you know, a few thousand bucks a month. Mm. And in 2000, and I, and I will, I want to touch in a second on the four hour work week. I'm sure you're familiar with that, but that book really influenced me dramatically mm-hmm. and really was the foundation upon which I built this business. And at some point in 2011, I lost both my consulting gigs in back to back. I mean, not through any misdeeds or anything like that. They just kind of expired and had run their, their course. But at that time, I thought, you know, I may just focus on this 38 thing. And just mm-hmm. see if I can make a, a go out. Because I was probably making three or 4000 a month at the time. And I thought, you know, I, I might be able to, to focus my energy. And instead of building somebody else's brand, like I've been doing over the past few years before that, building somebody else's marketing and, and public relations, I bet I could focus my energy on this. And that's when the, really the inflection point started to happen, when the business really began to grow. And I even... I, I've always worked remotely you know, since moving to the beach and even before that. So I've always been able to work from anywhere. We took our kids out of school for a year and went around the world. So I was doing my job in, you know, Turkey and Bosnia and Bali and Hong Kong and all of these places. And my kids were doing virtual school and, you know, all of these things. So that was that was kind of a, a lifestyle inflection point that made me realize, oh, we really can design this incredible life. We really can do what the book says. And since then, you know, and again, we can talk more about the 38 business model per se, but, but I really have been in pursuit of that. You know, it's like, how do I, going back to the Ravicon thing, to me, time, yes, health is assumed. If you don't have health, you're screwed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you've got to have that. But I, I, even money, I'm just kind of pushed a little bit further down the list. You got to have enough to survive. But I would argue that I was pretty happy in my college days making absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And still was founding myself in college bars three or four nights a week, having fun with my buddies and playing video games. And somehow, when money came into the equation, I became so money obsessed that I lost mm-hmm. touch with a lot of that happiness. And now I'm convinced more than ever that time is the most essential thing. And as my friend says, it's the ultimate luxury. Uh, time mm-hmm. is the ultimate luxury. And, and really, at the beach, you begin to embrace that notion that Money isn't that important. Really, down here, your success is measured by how many hours you can sit on the beach if you want to, guilt-free, without any other obligations. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, what I want to, as we start to run out of time here, what I want to uh, kind of make sure we touch on, because it feels like it's kind of all coming together a little bit here now in this moment in time, you know, where this, this kind of new next, you know, call it what you want, you know, metaverse, web three, NFTs, this whole kind of next stage of, of, of technology and how that's going to impact humanity and, and the, the role that community has in that. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, dialogue around, in particular with, with virtual reality, that, you know, we're going to become disconnected and, and going away from each other. And people feel that way about social media. And so I've got to hear your take because you've really been in the game literally from you know the very beginning and and you know kind of seeing the ups and downs and and the the you know the booms and the busts and you've seen kind of how things have evolved and you've seen where people have said you know gaming's bad or you know the internet's whatever and you know kind of the fads and the things that were actually fads and the things that actually stuck I want to hear kind of your take on the the next stage that we're entering into that maybe we're already in and and kind of how you see this going, what role does it have in continuing to build community into being able to kind of have this this peace or joy or happiness or freedom that you find at the beach, you know. What, where are we going? Talk to me a little bit. Give me your insight on kind of where we're at, where we're going. <laughs> well, if I say too much, you know, honestly, this is probably where the wheels come off and then everybody goes, oh my God, this guy's crazy. You know, because I, I do have, you know, my friends and I talk a lot about life, universe and everything, if you will. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have not, I mean, again, this is where I'm going to sound totally cuckoo biscuits, but it is an entertaining thought. Well, you're also in the right place, uh, the right with the right person to be talking about, you know, that kind of stuff. So go for it. Don't hold back. I, I'm not entirely convinced that we're not in a simulation. I mean, I'm, I, I will just be upfront. I mean, Elon was actually the first one to put that seed probably in my mind, and it just seems so ridiculous and so outlandish. But you know, I think he made a statement that if there's a one in a billion chance that we're not in a simulation. Now, this is a pretty smart dude, right? I mean, we like him or love him or hate him or you know, take him or leave him. Pretty smart dude. And if there is a guy who's hacked into the game of life between PayPal and Tesla and SpaceX and Starlink and all that, here's a dude that seems to be bending reality, right? I mean, he seems to figure have figured out the algorithm of the game of life, whatever that means. And, you know, he's pretty convinced that we are in the same and if if that's true, you know, he seems to know how the rules work and is is kind of uh, playing with that. Now, I'm I grew up devout Catholic, and so I'm looking at it a little bit from a biblical and my belief in God and my you know I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And you know, I the more I've dug into it, I'm like, you know, that's not inconsistent with what I was taught growing up. You know, basically we're taught that. You know, this is not your real body. This is not, there is something beyond this. This is not what, what you see is not real. It is, you know, there is something more. And this is a shell, you know, that contains an essence that ultimately goes on to something else. And, 
you know, and, and you start to think that through and then you start to think through, huh, okay. My friend brought up this interesting point. Think about billions of years of existence that we're, you know, able to, to, to pinpoint or be aware of. What are the odds that I literally, out of billions of years, my brief lifespan, I literally have seen video games go from being a dot that bounces back and forth on uh, between two virtual paddles to where you can now put on a headset and virtually get nauseous feeling like you might be stepping off of a cliff. Mm-hmm. So Elon's premise is that if you only take that 10 more years, it will be indistinguishable from reality, which means in all likelihood, we're already there. Mm-hmm. Now, my friend's point is we have to be the luckiest people in the world in humankind to just literally be at the point where at six and seven years old, we're getting a Pong game, we're going mm-hmm. to Atari, we're going to Commodore, we're going to Nintendo, to where now we're going into this area where you're not going to know whether you're in virtual reality or not. By the time you imagine suits that give you stimulus or you know whatever, that's not that far off. It's an, in fact, it's inevitable. So mm-hmm. I think there is kind of like that. That's a little bit of a flag. You know, it's like, hmm, are we just happen to be that random group in a billions of years that saw that from day one till present? Or is this all syncing up for a big reveal? Right. You know, and I don't know the answer to it. It's just fun for us. My, my friends and I like to talk about philosophical stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, if you excluding the crazy talk, which way it's going to go, it can obviously be very dystopian. It can be very positive, it can be very negative. I, I think where it's going to go is just like anything. I think when you develop nuclear technology, uh, the first thing you do is blow shit up and you know somebody's going to get hurt and there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen before we figure out how to control it if we don't blow ourselves up in the process. So mm-hmm. I think that it's not going to be unlike unlocking nuclear technology, you know, and then entering a cold war where that it's a weaponization that could destroy us. Mm-hmm. But if we get through it, if our wisdom catches up with our scientific knowledge before we end up destroying ourselves, I think it could be a very amazing, wonderful, positive thing. But I think yeah. before we get to that moment of ultimate happiness and positivity, I think we have to navigate not destroying ourselves, whether that's through, you know, man-made creations or artificial intelligence taking over, whatever it is. I think there's going to be a lot of pitfalls, just like there was with the advent of nuclear technology. Yeah. Yep. I hear you. I, you know, like I said, you're in the right place, talking to the right person to kind of lay out that, that theory. And I actually think there's something to it all, you know, that feels, you know, that one of the things that I've kind of really learned recently is that, you know, what we, we, what we think of, you know, our, in our mind of certain things like, you know, virtual reality or, you know, simulation, right? We, we, we have it in our mind that it's some like something different than what it actually is. And, and kind of, you know, this is, this is maybe me getting a little spiritual or, you know, woo woo um, with you. But, you know, when you talk about religion and you talk about how you were raised and, and spirituality and God, right? Like, like maybe, maybe 
that's the simulation, right? That it's just like this, this universal, you know, thing, which I call God, not, you know, an individual, you know, with, with the beard and, you know, in the chair, but like this, this energy, right. And, and it's, it's the simulation and we are just all part of that. Right. And, and that is kind of what a lot of religion is based on and, and kind of, you know, what uh, to me seems way more likely than, you know, it's just like random, like, you know, and and it's funny because sometimes I, I watch my, my kids play video games and I, and I see how kind of, you know, they're, and, and, you know, you can, you read a lot about this or the, you know, social dilemma talks about, you know, how the, the, the machines are, are using us. Right. And it's like, well, all right, you know, maybe, maybe we are just players in this game that somebody else is, is playing. So anyway, I, I love it. I, I could go down that rabbit hole with you <laughs> for hours. Maybe we'll catch up, talk more about that and, and kind of metaverse and some things I'm I'm starting to do as far as community goes. I'd love to pick your brain, but, but let me wrap up here. Final thoughts, you know, anything, you know, that you want to make sure you share with the audience or just anything that's kind of coming to you as we conclude. Well, again, I'm, we're finding my wife and I are finally empty nesters and we have decided this year after two years of, of challenges that everybody has faced. We also, Chase, we experienced some challenges with regard to the pandemic, personal health issues that my wife had a very adverse reaction. And so she was kind of paralyzed for about five or six months this past year. She's a yoga teacher and, you know, she's now able to walk and drive again. But, you know, it was definitely a wake up call that time is ticking and that that health component, when it goes away, it changes everything, you know, and, and now we have her health back for the most part. And so we've decided, you know, come hell or high water, this is the year where we're going to go back out. And so we're preparing, you know, to leave within about 30 to 60 days to go around the world again and to spend the next, you know, couple of years traveling aimlessly. And and I'm fortunate enough to have built a business uh, on principles that enable me to do my job from anywhere. And so we're, we've decided that, again, this, this pursuit of what excites us. We're, we're still going to keep our home here. We still love the beach. We love our community. We're still going to be doing what we do. But we've decided that time is ticking. And while we have our health, we better get out there and see what all this world has to offer. So I want to encourage everyone to, just like there have been numerous times in my life where I've hit the reset button, including you know not able to get the ad agency job and I reinvented myself as an entrepreneur including having business failures and hitting the reset button and picking up and moving to the beach blindly, not knowing what was going to come. So now we are going to hit the reset button and really architect a life of travel and adventure and love and romance and friendship and focus on the things that really matter the most to me, which is my friends, which is my, my, my family and also our adventures. And so I want to encourage everyone to take this moment to not let the pandemic dictate what your next year is going to be or the next year's ahead. I think it's time for us to all shed that skin and to use this moment to elevate our life, to reevaluate things, to move things around. If you're in the portfolio of life, it's time to look at where your holdings are and say, you know, I'm spending too much time doing this. I want to spend more time doing this. And that's what we've really done. And I want to encourage everyone else to use this opportunity and this excuse to do the same thing. That's great, Mike, and I'm happy to hear that uh, your wife is is up and and feeling better. And yeah, it's been hard. You know, I think you're you're right. You know, we can kind of all decide how we want to, you know, 
digest this pandemic and and you know what conclusions we want to form you know based on our experiences but there's no doubt it's been difficult for people physically um, and emotionally and that it's had real it's had a real impact and I'm, so I'm sorry to hear that that was experience for you but I'm happy to hear that you're you're you, you've learned a tremendous amount from that experience and are actually going out into the world to put that learning to to use so look forward to to hearing all about that and maybe maybe we'll have you back on to give us an update on on your adventures but I really appreciate the opportunity to have you on today and to have you share your journey with the audience it's a great story and it's good to it's good to be with you well thank you so much for inviting me and I look forward to staying in touch with you guys and following along all right that's a wrap thanks Mike thank you Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.